Well, um, I particularly like the title for this series. Don't you? It's just fear. Fear. I, I, uh, the, the leadership of City Church has noticed, shall we say, a certain modicum of fear in our culture that for one reason or another has been exacerbated recently. So we thought three weeks on fear might not be a bad idea. When my dad was in graduate school, before he had met my mom, he was house-sitting for a friend and was given a book by another friend on spiritual warfare, which if you are not familiar with the phrase spiritual warfare is like demons, a how-to guide. And um, the, the, the book came with a little caveat, which is don't read it after dark, <laughs> which is, I think, a legitimate concern. And so uh, his friend goes, this is a good book. It's useful in a number of ways. Just don't read it after dark, to which my dad goes, I can handle books after dark. I'm a grown-up big boy. Not true. So he read the book, <laughs> like the first three chapters alone in this house, and uh, is sufficiently freaked out, has a certain modicum of fear. And uh, so crawls into bed, turns out the lights, shaking in his jammies. <laughs> and as his eyes adjust to the darkness and his ears adjust to the quiet of the house, he perceives ever so slightly, a ripple in the darkness just above his face. Just a thin, elusive, but noticeable whirring in the darkness. Probably the most exciting and the most terrifying fact about our world is it is a place where just about anything can happen. Hurricanes or miracles or cancer. Giant squids exist. <laughs> just about anything can happen. And fear comes when you apprehend that fact, and it sounds uh, as though um, anything can happen. See, the world could be like, anything can happen, guys. But if you hear anything can happen as anything can happen, if you register the sort of surprising, revelatory nature of the world as there's something to be afraid of behind every door, that's where fear shows up. Fear comes where anything can happen becomes a threat. So uh, I, I had a, a recent very tough conversation with a friend, and we were sitting on a bench by a pond. Now, you should know about me that the thing I am most afraid of in the world are spiders. I am a pastor's child, which means I didn't have cable growing up, and my grandfather would film documentaries and send them to me, and I only recently realized that this is not a normal thing that people's grandparents do. And of course, they always sent me the Nature Channel, because what could possibly go wrong with the Nature Channel? So I know everything there is to know about the animals that Americans want to know about, which, as we all know, are great whites, bald eagles, lions, and spiders. And uh, spider, black widows, especially, mostly show up in cold, dark places, like under your pillow or in your shoes. So as long as you never sleep and you go barefoot, you'll never meet one. So I'm on, I'm on a bench with a friend, in the sunset, as it is getting cooler, by a pond, which is damp. And slowly up behind them crawled a sizable black widow. And I'm going, that thing bites me. I have 10 minutes to live. My eyelids will swell up. I'll have cramping and vomiting. My feet will swell up. I'll have to take me to the hospital. I've never been tested to know if I'm allergic to the antidote for black widow venom. So they're also going to have to have somebody else on hand to get the anesthesia in case this thing goes well. But out of my mouth, I said, the deadliest spider in America is behind you. I think we ought to stand up now. <laughs> so we both stand, and they looked over my shoulder and gave kind of a churlish chirp 
and uh, they run back to the car, and hand to God, slithering up the bricks at us was a water moccasin that had come out of the pond, and then I said, Satan is in this place, and I uh, ran back to the car. I called my dad on the way home and told him the story, and he goes, huh, what do you think that means? (laughs) I don't think it means anything. No, we're not shamans looking around for worrying in the dark, but the fact of the matter is, anything can happen. Spiders crawl out behind benches, snakes come out of the pond, you have a fallout with a friend, anything can happen in this world. And that means, for everything, there is a phobia. When I was asked to preach this sermon, I started to take a look at fear as a general concept. And it quickly became clear to me that fear isn't really a general concept. So the DSM-5, which is the handbook that psychiatrists use to organize phobias and pathologies, organizes fears into three categories. There are specific fears, which are fears of specific things. There are social fears, which are fears about how people perceive you or you function in the world. And then there's agoraphobia, fear of, like, the environment, essentially. And underneath all of those, there are, like, hundreds of other fears. And I found this list online, phobiaslist.com. Who has this much time? And... uh, You know, they have like arachnophobia and claustrophobia, which are the phobias that we all know. But then they have a thalassophobia, fear of the sea. Thalassos in Greek means fear. Fear of the sea. Or um, anuptophobia, which is the fear of staying single for the rest of one's life. (laughs) There's ephebiphobia, which means uh, fear of teenagers, a fear that I had particularly as a teenager. I would like to slip in here, if you are also afraid of teenagers and being alone for the rest of your life, all the 20-somethings will be going to lunch after the service. Aaron Seagears gets to pick where we're going, but we'll be meeting out in the front. Transit Ministries, single and not teenagers for the rest of our lives. And um, there's also, if you can believe it, sesquipedalophobia, which is, ironically, the fear of long words. Sesquipedalophobia is the fear of long words. And some of these are learned, and and some of them are real, and some of them are unreal, some of them are useful, some of them are not. But if you're going to preach a sermon on fear, you need to figure out what unites them all. So this is my first swing. What if what's common to all fears is that Christ has overcome them? It sounds like somebody's thought about that before. Just to say it again, Christ has overcome all fears. Maybe, maybe the specific and the social and the agoraphobias should all be under one title, Victims of Christ. Christ has overcome all fears. The Bible illustrates this to us in a number of ways, largely by telling stories where Jesus is able to manage things that the average Joe shouldn't be able to manage. And we're going to take a look at one of them now. So if you'd turn with me to Matthew 8, it's page 789 in the Bibles we provide. Uh, we'll read it together. Now, I have to admit, so I I, uh, studied classics in college, I did a lot of Greek and Hebrew, and I am pretty dissatisfied with the NIV's translation of this story, so I will be largely retranslating it myself as we go along, but don't worry, it all still makes sense. All right, here's what it says in verse 23. Then he, being Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him and said, Lord, save us, we are drowning. And he replied, O you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
it's important perhaps to remember that, most of the, that, that a number of the disciples were ancestral fishermen. So they grew up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, hearing stories about how bad life on the sea can be. Generations of myths. You know, the Grimm's fairy tales were written to teach southern German children not to go into the woods. In my mom's family, there is a myth that somewhere in eastern Pennsylvania, there is a gravestone that said, here lies little Johnny. He didn't go to the bathroom and held it too long, and he died. <laughs> Which is the story told by my great aunts and my mom to teach us to always use the bathroom on road trips. <laughs> there are a number of stories that probably sprung up at this point in the Galilee to tell people not to go out on the sea. Like, remember old Uncle Ibrahim? He saw the clouds coming over the Golan Heights, but he still got into his canoe, and no one's seen old Uncle Ibrahim for the rest of his life. Don't be like old Uncle Ibrahim. But these disciples decided to follow Jesus into a boat at night. They are expert thalassophobes. They know exactly that this is a bad idea, and when they see the storm coming, all these stories start popping up in their mind about Uncle Ibrahim and Aunt... I don't know any first-century girls' names in Hebrew. And... Um, and uh, all the stories are quickly coming true. Soon the moon is blocked out by massive rolls of thunder. Uh, storms can crop up in about 20 minutes on the Sea of Galilee. And it's 8 miles wide, 13 miles tall, and 141 feet deep. So, ain't nowhere to run, essentially. All the stories have suddenly become true right when they start to see that the storm is hitting the sea, the sea where they are. This is the moment where it has gotten as bad as you think it can get. What are the stories that, if they became true for you, would be as bad as they could get? Bankruptcy, lost child, degree in the humanities. <laughs> what are the stories that, if they came true, you wouldn't know where to go? I've noticed a funny thing about those stories. A funny thing about the stories where you lose someone or you lose something, they usually feel like chaos. They don't feel like calm. Somehow there's less going on, but they feel like a thousand winds and panic moving in a thousand directions. When Jesus calms a storm, he can calm any storm. And the funny thing is that the less we have, oftentimes the stormier we feel. And so they cry out, we are perishing. My first problem with the NIV, it does not say drowning. If it said drowning, it would say pinnometha, which it does not say. It says apolumetha which means we are perishing. This is what you do to a city if you're going to ruin it. We are perishing, they cry. And uh, I, I think I've prayed that before. I think. Lord, help me. I'm perishing. But Jesus is just asleep in the boat. Now, the Psalms say that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my life, it has felt like God has been very absent and very asleep and very far away. Maybe more often than not. And the disciples got to be thinking to themselves, we followed this guy into the boat. He thinks he's God. And now he's asleep and the storm has cropped up. I am seriously starting to doubt the orthodoxy that we agreed to when we signed up for this adventure. From the disciples' point of view, it looks like God is asleep. But here's the crazy thing. The phrase, Lord save us, we are perishing, wakes God up. God rouses from sleep. Why was Jesus sleeping? Was it because he didn't care, or he couldn't be bothered, or he thought it was some kind of practical joke? Why does Jesus sleep in this? Why does God sleep? I think 
that the next phrase that Jesus says gives us a hint. Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? I don't think God is afraid of much of anything. I think God is willing to fall asleep in the boat while God in the heavens is still working the world out as he always thought it would be worked out. God is not afraid, I think, of just about anything. And Jesus goes, why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Perhaps my second problem with the NIV translation is this sounds like, why are you in this moment so terrified? Now what it says. It says, why are you cowards? Why are you, it's a personality trait. If you look up this word for fear, it's a word for fear associated with timidity or cowardice, not a fear associated with fight or flight mode. Jesus goes, why are you so cowardly? Why are you cowards? Oh, you of little faith. And the answer is, because we are going to die. We are expert thalassophobes. We know exactly what happens here. It's going to be the exact same thing to happen to Uncle Ibrahim, and we find it a little ridiculous that you would take the time to ask us this question, quite frankly, in this moment. But he does. Why are you so afraid? This is the same Jesus who always raises the stakes on how it is you deal with your own life. This is the Jesus who three chapters earlier goes, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Isn't that like the only thing I should worry about? I mean, if somebody else gets the flu, doesn't bother me. But Jesus goes, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Why are you so afraid? Even though we've cried out, Lord, we're perishing. And I hate that little phrase, oh, you of little faith. It like hits me every time. I've never been able to escape that phrase. Every time it comes up in the Gospels, it just looks like Jesus is staring me right down. Oh, you of little faith. And in the same breath as he asks them, why are you so afraid? In the same breath as he goes, oh, you of little faith, he commands the winds and the waves to be silent, and they are. The, if you're an uh, ancient Jew and you look out at the Mediterranean Sea, you know a couple things. Like one, weird stuff keeps washing up out of there. Giant squids exist, guys. Every once in a while, an armada of foreign armies will just kind of like show up and now you know, you have a couple centuries of oppression. Or uh, old Uncle Ibrahim took out his canoe and he never came back. All that to say that in the Bible, the sea is the symbol of evil. You might remember that in Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the world and the world was formless and void and uh, darkness was over the face of the waters and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The creation story is actually the story of God dealing with the chaotic ocean to bring order out of chaos, to make our world possible. You might also remember that in Revelation, it is promised in the New Jerusalem that there will be no sea. When God sets all things right, he takes the symbol of evil away. God's ability to command the ocean is God's ability and God's only. That Jesus can command the wind and the waves doesn't mark him as an especially interesting person. It marks him as God because it, re it, it uh, repeats his action in creation. This is how Matthew tells us that Jesus is co-equal with God, because he can handle things that the average Joe can't handle. The funny, the, perhaps the most interesting and terrifying thing about the sea is that there, uh, anything can happen. 95% of the ocean has never been seen by human eyes. Who knows what is out there, man? 
But Jesus can command it. Jesus can tell something, 95%, anybody's guess, to be quiet, and it does. Jesus is able to save us from the sea, from evil, from death. I don't know if anybody else has caught this, but this is the whole salvation story in short. People of little faith cry out to Jesus, and he saves them. You don't have to have the faith together to cry out to Jesus, and he will calm the wind and the waves. You cry out to Jesus because you're afraid, and you find that he's right in your boat. And he does actually manage to save them. This is the salvation short story in four verses. He was asleep in the boat, and he calms the waves so you can sleep in the boat. If Jesus is our model, if we're to be like Jesus, we should be looking to find rest. I would like to introduce you to a friend of mine named Sophie Scholl. Sophie died in 1943, so we're not particularly close, but I like her a lot. Um, Sophie Scholl was born the 9th of May, 1921. She was the fourth of six children, and in 1942, she enrolled at the University of Munich after Hitler had risen to power. It wouldn't be a World War II, it wouldn't be a Peter Hartwig Smaller sermon if there wasn't a World War II reference, so here you go. Um, Sophie Scholl uh, was 21 years old, and she and her brother Hans uh, started a, uh, a society with their professor called the White Rose, a little group of free-thinking Christian students, except for one, I think there was one guy who was actually an Orthodox Jew, uh, who um, wrote tracts defaming Hitler. They would travel around to various towns, they would mail them back to the university so that everybody thought that their movement was bigger than it was. But she's still like the consummate teenager. So she writes in her diary, sometimes I wish I could yell, my name is Sophie Shaw, remember that. <laughs> and at the same time, she's handing these leaflets out. She's leaving them in the hallway so that when students come out of class, they hear this propaganda against the Third Reich. She wrote this about what she was doing. The real damage is done by the millions who want to survive. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control, but that's all an illusion because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny balls so as to be safe. Safe? Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I will choose my own way to burn." I'm still so remote from God, though, that I don't even sense his presence when I pray. Sometimes when I utter God's name, in fact, I feel like sinking into a void. It isn't a frightening or dizzying sensation. It's nothing at all, and that's far more terrible. But prayer is the only remedy for it. And however many devils scurry around inside me, I shall cling to the rope that God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even if my numb hands are too cold to feel it. 21 years old. She's sending flyers around the University of Munich. On the 18th of February, 1943, she and her brother had passed out a bunch of leaflets around uh, while people were in class, and they had a suitcase left of them. So they went to the top of the bell tower and the, uh, the middle tower of the main building at the university, and they threw the suitcase open. And a thousand of these leaflets came fluttering down, and a janitor saw them performed a citizen's arrest, and turned them over to the Gestapo. A 19, on, four days later, on February 2nd, she was tried and condemned with her brother. We, uh, we have 
the transcripts now from that trial. This is what she said to a Nazi jurist. You are wrong. I would do everything again exactly in the same way. For it is not I who have the wrong way of life, it is you. I did the best that I could do for my nation. I therefore do not regret my conduct and will bear the consequences that come from it. So many people have died for this regime. It's high time somebody die against it. A 21-year-old academic, her mother, uh, the, the night before she was executed, Sophie Scholl's roommate wrote a, wrote a letter to her, and this is what she said. All that night, the light was kept on, and every half an hour, an officer looked in. How these people lacked any understanding of your deep piety, of your trust in God. For me, the night was endless, while you, as before, were fast asleep. You slept deep. How I admired you. All those hours of interrogation had done nothing to your calm, relaxed manner. Your unshakable deep faith gave you strength to sacrifice yourself for others. The next morning, her mother came to see her one last time. And her mother, uh, the only thing she could think to say was to look across the bars at Sophie and go, Sophie, remember Jesus. And Sophie said, yes, mother, but you must remember Jesus too. Sophie could sleep in the boat. She clung to the rope that God had thrown her in Jesus Christ. She remembered Jesus Christ, and so did her mother. 21 years old, asleep in the boat in the face of the most vicious empire in Western history. Whatever your cell, whatever your storm, whatever your phobias, you can sleep in the boat. Jesus actually saves. Jesus actually saves. So I'm 22, a good 365 days more mature than Sophie Scholl, and I have a number of fears. I'm afraid I'm going to tick the wrong box on my taxes, and the government's going to take all of my money, which is not much. I'm afraid that I will die alone for whatever reason. I just, I don't know, I am. I'm afraid that all my college friends will forget me. You know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm just going to kind of like grow old on the shelf of life, and then someone will dust me off for my funeral. I'm afraid of teenagers. I'm afraid of what will happen on November 8th. I have a phobia for just about everything. Taxophobia, adultophobia, electophobia. And the question is, can Jesus actually meet them? Can Jesus actually conquer them? Is this a worrying in the dark? Or does the story that Matthew tells apply also to me? You have to decide that. That would be something like faith. One final thought on this passage. Um, Jesus calms the wind and the waves, and then the disciples go, what matter of man is this, that the wind and the waves obey him? Again, I don't like this translation. In Greek, it says something closer to, what sort is this one? Now, I like this because it emphasizes the concept of person over the concept of man, and I think that reminds me that God's a person. You... I would be remiss if after the sermon you thought that I had told you that God was an emergency evacuation device or a storm-calming force or a vending machine to get rid of all the problems that you feel you currently have. God is a person with God's own mind, God's own will, God's own emotions. And dealing with God is a relationship, not a contract. It's a person that calms the wind and the waves. It's a person that we cry out to. It's a person 
who's in our boat. God is not a force, a rule, a kind of vague mechanism. God is a person, and what kind of person is he? How would you answer that exactly? What kind of person is God? I think that he's the person that's calmed every storm I've ever had. In the world that he created, in the world where anything can happen, the world that he made out of the sea, that he commanded in Jesus Christ, I can cry out, Lord, save me, I'm perishing, and he calms the storm. In him, there's rest. There is actually rest. But my dad, remember him? He's in bed. He can't sleep because there's a very obscure, dark, whirring object over his head. And he figures that he's got just about enough time to throw off the sheets, run across the room, flick on the light before all the demons get him. Because we all know that demons are afraid of the light. So, he breathes deep and tense. Counts one, two, three, throws off the sheets, leaps across the room, flicks on the light, and in the name of Jesus, he rebukes the ceiling fan. <laughs> whatever your fear, whatever your phobia, the demons or the ceiling fan or the storm or the cell or the sea or the greatest empire in Western history, Jesus can command it to be quiet. Jesus can give you rest in the boat. Jesus can give you rest in the storm, even if you can't see where you're going. Would you pray with me and I'll invite the worship team up. Almighty God, some of us here have been following you for years. And that means that we have followed you into a storm. Almighty God, some of us don't have really any concept of you at all. We're just in a storm on our own. But we ask that you would be faithful to be woken by our cry, Lord, help us. We are perishing. Lord, you hear us as a person, as a father with children who loves to hear the needs of those who cry out to him. So God, anybody that's in a storm today, anybody that's clinging to Jesus, we pray that you would meet them in their boat, in their storm, that you would command the wind and the waves to be silent, and you would make the phrase, anything can happen, a phrase of great hope, a phrase of great faith, a phrase of possibility and promise. Lord, we know that you can do all things. Anything can happen. Be with us today and tomorrow and all the days after that. Amen. Stand and worship with us. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll So oh.
Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have overcome every single fear. And in you, we can find peace. Lord, now we ask, we ask in your name, we ask that you would now bless us and that you would keep us that you would cause your face to shine upon us and that you would give us peace. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You can remain in worship if you would like. You can slip out quietly. God bless you. Let's go out singing this worship with all of our hearts. Let's sing it together. the day when the faith shall be silent. The clouds 
Nothing can come between us and you, Lord, that you are bigger than all things in our life. We love you, Lord. We just pray for your blessing on today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Thank you.